Welcome to Reformed Rakes, a historical romance podcast that would stand up for you as a character witness in a court of law. I'm Emma, a law librarian writing about justice and romance, the Substack Restorative Romance. I'm Beth, and I'm on Book Talk under the name Beth Hamond Reads. My name is Chels. I'm the writer of the romance Substack, The Loose Cravat, a romance book collector and book talker under the username Chels underscore ebooks. This is our second episode in our trilogy on Patricia Gaffney's Wickerly series, focusing on the second book, To Have It to Hold. Chell said in our last episode that we see each of these books dealing with one structural force of provincial life. The first book deals with God, the third book deals with labor. This one is about prison, literal, and metaphorical. Published in September 1995, To Have and to Hold is the story of Sebastian Verlaine, the new Viscount Daubry following the death of Geoffrey and to love and to cherish, and Rachel Wade, an outsider to Wickerly. Rachel, until very recently, had been incarcerated for 10 years for killing her abusive husband. Sebastian and Rachel meet in strange circumstances for a romance novel. She is being arraigned for vagrancy, having no place to live after her release from prison, and Sebastian, in his new role as Viscount, is one of the magistrates overlooking this procedure. Sebastian is immediately struck by Rachel's story and appearance, and rather than have her sent back to prison, he offers to employ her as his housekeeper. But do not mistake this act as one of beneficence. From the beginning of Sebastian's internal monologue, he makes it clear that he has less honorable intentions towards Rachel. He is fascinated by the effects of prison on her personality, and he wants to know all the sordid details of both her abuse by her husband and the husband's murder. Rachel similarly understands the conditions that employment by Sebastian require, but is so fearful of prison that she prefers the coerced relationship with her employer to the idea of returning to a cell. What follows is one of the most compassionate romance novels I've ever read, about harming and being harmed, and what is required to develop past that. This was the first Bodice Ripper I'd ever read, and reading it radically shifted what I thought what I wanted from romance novels. This book does depict sexual violence, and it is between the male love interest and the female love interest. I will qualify that compared to the other Bodice Ripper we have read for the podcast, Stormfire, the sexual violence and physical violence in this book is significantly less extreme, and I personally found the discussion between Sebastian and Rachel about the violence enacted really empowering and restorative. But if you need to skip this episode and catch us next time, we understand. So before we get into the plot summary, I wanted to talk about our personal relationship to bodice strippers. This is the second bodice stripper that we've done on the show. Um, this was the first bodice stripper that I ever read. I read it, I think, in November of 2022. And I had been really trepidatious to read the genre, even though I take a lot of my recommendations from Chells, and Chells reads quite a few bodice strippers. I just, I was sort of scared of reading them. So I thought we could talk about sort of our relationship to this sort of subgenre in historical romance. I read it in April of this year, and it was funny because we were talking before we started recording about how you kind of, like, catch the bug of Bodice Rippers, because I, like, look on my Goodreads, and we were recording for Stormfire, and I must have just been like, I want another book like this, and picked up to have and to hold, but finished it, like, a little bit before Stormfire. Yeah, kind of like Emma said, this kind of changed my brain chemistry a little bit. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, oh, Romance books can be like this. I don't know. It's just, they're fascinating to me. Yeah. Um. So I think I've, I guess I've kind of have a little bit of a reputation on TikTok for being like the bodice ripper dude, because that's, uh, I read a lot of them and they really interest me. 
Something that I think is really interesting is the first time I read To Have and To Hold, I wrote my Goodreads review of it. And I've since returned to it like many, many times. But like looking at that the first time, I was kind of struck by how almost apologetic I was about liking it. Like right. I it was I was I feel like I was a very different person at that time. I mm-hmm. I had all of these caveats about like, oh, if you don't like this, if you're not comfortable with this. And I've kind of stopped speaking that way because you know as adults like you 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 know what you're comfortable with like you know what you can mm-hmm. handle i don't think this is a, an immoral book I'm far from it actually quite the opposite i think this is uh, i think we might talk about this later but i think this book is extremely feminist i i think those caveats kind of do a disservice kind of like prepare people to look at it in a uncharitable light and I want to trust people the way that I want people to trust me to like get it and not worry so much about people that don't get it so it was kind of fascinating to see like how in the past few years I've completely changed because I would never do that anymore I'm like (laughs) I'm the least apologetic about it so that's quite fun yeah I think those caveats are what like scared me of body shippers for Mm -hmm. so long even though I don't find myself like particularly like sensitive to media like I watch like scary movies I watch violent movies but something about body strippers seemed like people are so tender about how they talk about them and I think you can be tender with yourself but I think sometimes you're it's kind of like a horror film trailer like if the trailer is always scarier than the movie Mm -hmm. um Mm. but I was expecting when I read this book I was expecting to be upset by eroticized rape that's sort of what I was expecting in body strippers like if sex scenes and romance novels are erotic and that's what I what I've gotten from the I, I guess like hundred romance novels I had read at the point when I read this book, but that's not what I found in this book. I think other body strippers have different relationships with how they write sex scenes, but this book in particular, it's very clear about what's happening. Like when something is a rape, it's called a rape, and I I found that like sort of novel, and we'll talk about that sort of the labeling of things and why that's different in this book compared to some other books that have similar setups. So as always, we're going to do a plot summary and get into sort of so everyone's on the same page of what happens with, with what's going on in the book. Sebastian Verlaine is on his way to fulfill his duties as the new Viscount Daubry. We see what his priorities are quickly. On his way to one of those duties, presiding over magisterial criminal proceedings, he's also breaking things off with his French mistress in a carriage, pretty callously towards her feelings. He's not particularly motivated to take the role of Viscount seriously and arrives at town hall late. During the first of these proceedings, Sebastian defers to the other magistrates when it comes to punishment, even though he thinks they're being a mite too harsh. But then a woman appears before the panel. Rachel Wade has been charged with indigence, the condition of not having a fixed address. She has been unable to find employment after being released from Dartmoor Convict Prison. She had served a 10-year sentence for murdering her husband. The magistrates are prepared to treat Rachel routinely, namely jailing her until the next assizes where her residency would be determined and she could be moved to a poorhouse in a parish that is responsible for her. She was born in Dorset but married in Devon where Wickerley is, so there's a question as to which community has a duty to her. But Sebastian begins to ask questions of the proceeding, including questioning the utility of jailing someone who's already served a sentence for their initial crime. Sebastian's inner thoughts make it clear, though. His intentions are not pure. He is fascinated by Rachel's steeliness and the accusation that she killed her husband, but he is also attracted to her subjugation and helplessness. The Viscount suggests an alternative. Rachel's new crime is that she has no job and nowhere to live, so he will provide both of those things and employ her as his housekeeper. Rachel is clearly educated and a lady, so she has qualifications, except for her conviction record. He puts the choice to her and she accepts, rather than return to jail, which the prospect of clearly terrifies her. Sebastian introduces Rachel to her duties, but she approaches everything in the house with trepidation. 
Prison has had a profound impact on the way she interacts with the world. She's suspicious of comforts as illusions. She doesn't look people in the eye because she'd been trained not to by her guards. He asks her what it was like in prison, and she ignores him. And Sebastian quickly realizes that his plan to get under her skin as a form of coercive and satisfying to him seduction will be harder than he realized. She just doesn't care enough to be bothered by his prodding. In Rachel's first POV section, she says deciding things was going to be a problem. And we see what actually is her great anxiety about taking the role of Sebastian's housekeeper. She suspects or knows his untoward attention, though she doesn't understand it. But what she really fears is the act of making decisions. In prison, all of her decisions were made for her, and she describes decision paralysis when she's presented with the simplest of choices. Rachel meets the household staff, and they respond to her with various levels of trepidation and unkindness, the cruelest being Violet, a maid in her 20s who makes it clear she does not feel compelled to follow the directives of the former convict. She does find some nervous allies in Maid Susan and the agent of the estate, William Holyoke. Holyoke is a local man, so Sebastian is able to question him about Rachel's history, at least the parts that are public knowledge. That her husband lived in a big house between Wickerley and a nearby town, he had mining interests, he was much older than Rachel when they married, and he was bludgeoned to death. Rachel never confessed to the murder. Holyoke also reveals to Sebastian what kept Rachel from being sentenced to death. During the trial, it was revealed that Mr. Wade had sexual partialities that made the jury more sympathetic to 18-year-old Rachel, who had only been married to him for a week. Sebastian finds himself motivated to stay in Wickerley and away from the London season, both for reasons for estate management and because of Rachel. The revelations about her husband's abuse only increase his interest in unlocking her mind, though his thoughts about his way of going about this remain distinctly sinister. When Rachel's late to a meeting, he goes to her housekeeper's room and thinks through the process of a step that he believes to be inevitable, their first kiss. He is moved by her vulnerability and images a martyr. He will have flashes of something earnest, but is always immediately followed by thoughts of possession and control. He kisses her, she lets him, though she cries, and then he invites her to dine with him. When Rachel can't accompany Sebastian to see a new foal because she has an appointment in town, she explains the conditions of her ticket for leave, which works similarly to parole. She must have regular meetings with administrators and continually pay a little of a fine to the crown. In town, Rachel meets Reverend Christy Morell for the first time. Christy then visits to meet with Sebastian, since Christy has just returned from his honeymoon. Christy reveals to Sebastian that Miss Lydia Wade, Rachel's school friend who is the daughter of Rachel's husband, lives in town and is very upset by Sebastian's appointment of Rachel. In one of his episodes of Controlling Behavior, Sebastian takes Rachel to town to purchase her clothes, leading to interactions with the townspeople that primarily embarrasses Rachel. During this trip, she goes to see her husband's grave. This seems to provide some closure to Rachel, and while graveside, she meets Anne Morell. Anne is friendly to Rachel, and this enlivens Rachel more than anything else in the narrative so far. But she's deflated when she returns to Linton Hall because Miss Lydia Wade is there to see her. Lydia is immediately cruel to Rachel, telling her the joy she got from picturing Rachel alone in prison, insisting Rachel did commit the murder. Lydia lunges at Rachel, but Sebastian stops her. Lydia's aunt, who's also visiting, attempts to explain that Lydia has not been well and escorts her niece away. Rachel continues to be distressed and struggles to sleep that night, experiencing fretful dreams of her husband. This is the state that Sebastian finds her in, in the sitting room. After initially comforting her, Sebastian makes it clear he's going to have sex with her. And Rachel responds, I hope I'm able to bear it. Sebastian realizes she means not only the sex they're about to have, but her entire life. She makes it clear to him that it is a rape, saying, I don't want this, and asking if this is a condition of her employment. While he's undressing her, Sebastian asks, what did he do to you? Referencing Rachel's husband, but this is where he meets the great resistance, not in the sex act. She refuses to say anything in response, even as he continues to ask the question. After the rape, in Rachel's mind, we learn that she's experiencing some relief, the dread of weeks finding a release. Her only regret centers on thinking that sleeping with Sebastian precludes her friendship with Anne Morell. 
Sebastian asks if he hurt her and clarifies, your body. Rachel responds, my body survived, my lord, and seems to be functioning normally. Sebastian asks Rachel to strip and join him in bed, and realizes based on her responses that this is something that her husband asked her to do. In that moment as well, when Sebastian is chagrined, Rachel sees something underneath his callous shell. When he undresses her, he sees her scars from her husband's abuse, which were used as the mitigating circumstances in her trial. They have sex again in Sebastian's bed, but this time he focuses more on extracting pleasure from Rachel, focusing on her body, and this leads to more violent resistance in her mind. She is terrified at the prospect of enjoying any aspect of sex, and this is what takes up her thoughts as she thinks of her resistance. Sebastian then becomes petulant and fussy towards Rachel, and finally does something he's been threatening. He throws a house party. The guests include Claude Sully, his sometimes friend and heir of Rachel's husband. When Rachel attends to the party, Sully uncouthly points out that she murdered his uncle. He toasts to her. His uncle's murder enriched him greatly, embarrassing Rachel. Sebastian insists they all dine together. While together, the friends and Sully push Rachel to discuss her prison term. She does, matter-of-factly, and this falls short of meeting their craving for salacious details. Finally, they play a card game, truth, that demands people share things about themselves, and the questions again primarily turn to Rachel. Sebastian is surprised that she continues to reveal things about herself, wondering what her limit could possibly be to the indignity. The answer is when Sully asks her about evidence given at the trial about Mr. Wade tying her to a chair and using a writing crop on her. This causes Rachel to bolt away. Sully asks Sebastian where Rachel's room is and if Rachel is his, implying exclusivity. Sebastian responds to the negative and Sully goes after Rachel, but Sebastian is quick to follow and he rescues her from Sully's assault. Sully is able to stab Sebastian, though Sebastian gets the better of him in the fight and kicks all the guests out of the house while bleeding profusely. Sully swears revenge. In her duties as housekeeper, Rachel expects to have to take care of the invalid Sebastian, but he now refuses her help at all. He drinks and plays piano and doesn't take care of his wound. After five days of pickling, he finally lets Rachel tend to his wound, and it is clear that he's deeply ashamed of letting his friends goad her the way he did, and the pleasure he took from watching her squirm, as well as parallels between their behavior and his own. He tells Rachel he was able to stop the evening and stop Sully because he knew the hatred he felt towards his friends was also a hatred towards his own actions. Sebastian questions Rachel's ability to move through the world without anger towards her circumstances, or towards him, and she opens up about the conditions of prison that led to her lack of caring that precludes anger as an emotional state. They both sense a shift in Sebastian's interest in Rachel and her past that goes beyond prurience, so she tells him about the last 10 years of her life while laying down next to him. At the end of her recital, Sebastian asks, who do you think killed Wade? And this breaks Rachel. Sebastian believes her innocence without a doubt, something even her family did not do. They fall asleep in bed together. Sebastian and Rachel fall into a sort of a domesticity. He gives her a puppy named Dandelion and talks to her about his estate. The relationship has shifted. Sebastian becomes interested in reviving Rachel, bringing her back to the living, and Rachel's non-consent has also shifted. They both know she still has resistance, but it is stemming in part from the place of trauma from her first marriage. Sebastian is interested in seducing her, still with his aim of his own pleasure, but through supporting her pleasure and unraveling the secrets of her mind. This includes how she came to marry her husband. Rachel knew Lydia waited school. Rachel had been sent there so she could move in the right circles to snag a husband, though she had more scholarly aspirations. Rachel met Lydia after finding the girl self-harming. They became close friends, and Rachel was invited to the Wade house. Lydia had sung the praises of her father, but Rachel initially did not like him. He unsettled her by her, his interest in her, but then charmed and flattered her to the point that she had forgotten her initial reticence. He courted her and then proposed, and she was encouraged to accept by her parents because of Wade's wealth. She was 18, and he was 38. Rachel blames herself for accepting the proposal, though Sebastian has a more generous read on the situation. She then skips the history of the week-long marriage and explains how Wade was murdered and how no one else was in the home, 
except for servants, for their honeymoon privacy. Rachel also reveals that she did attempt to tell her mother about the abuse, but she couched the letter in such delicate terms that her mother believed Rachel was just explaining fear of normal marital relations. Fashion then realizes that, though he, once he really wanted to know this, he now has no desire to know the details of Rachel's abuse. But he also knows that anything Rachel chooses to disclose to him, he would listen to. He offers to listen to her about the marriage as an act of atonement for his sins against her. But Rachel refuses in the moment and makes a reference to Sebastian doing acts similar to that of her husband. He is offended and attempts to explain that consent can be part of acts that look like violence in the bedroom, but she balks at this idea. On the trip to the post office in town, Rachel receives a package. She opens it, there's a sigil representing the prison she was in. She becomes distressed and Anne Morell finds her and invites her to tea. Anne makes it clear to Rachel that they are friends and that Rachel may use Anne's name to gain respectability in Wickerly. Rachel tells Sebastian about the threatening package and he believes that Sully is responsible for it, though Rachel believes that it is Lydia. Sebastian promises to speak to Lydia's aunt on her behalf and invites Rachel to his rooms that night at a precise time for another gift. When she arrives, he takes her to the bath and gifts her a hot bath in his rooms. She relaxes and he keeps himself from touching her, remarking that he ought to be given a medal for resisting temptation. She quips the order of the bath and he's taken aback by her ability to make a joke. He thinks one half of his goal was to make her laugh, but it had never occurred to him that her making him laugh might be just as good. Rachel attempts to thank him for the gifts, but Sebastian tries to explain that thanks are unnecessary because what he's trying to do is make her happy at Linton Hall. He begins to seduce her again, expressly seeking her pleasure. For a time, Rachel seems to be fully consenting to the interaction, but suddenly declares stop. It is clear this time the resistance is because she's afraid of her own pleasure rather than of him. She asks him to cease seeking his, her pleasure and instead take his own. After they have sex again, he tells her that he's falling in love with her and she says nothing in response. In the next few weeks, Sebastian continues to care for Rachel, though he does not repeat his declaration. Rachel is confronted with a big decision as housekeeper when a new maid, Sydney Timms, who is was taken in after her father was arrested for physically assaulting her, is underperforming on the job. After talking to the girl, Rachel realizes that the small rooms of the kitchen trigger Sydney because of the nature of her father's abuse. Rachel and William Holyoke conspire to have Sydney reassigned to dairymaid duties. Harder work, but with less time spent indoors. Rachel sees Sebastian talking to Sophie Dean, a woman from the village, in his study, and is struck by jealousy of the young and attractive woman. She worries about her dependency on Sebastian's affection, which still seems mercurial. The moment Sophie leaves, Sebastian kisses Rachel, then asks Rachel of her opinion of Sophie, since he has decided to invest in her copper mine. Sebastian then takes Rachel for one more gift, boxes and boxes of newly published books. But in the same moment, he tells Rachel he's been called away because his father is dying and he must leave Rachel for a few days. While he is gone, she receives a letter that informs her that her ticket of leave has been remitted, setting aside her parole conditions, meaning she's free from all administrative punishment. While out and about enjoying her freedom, Rachel is told by Anne Morell that Claude Sully is back in town. Back at Linton Hall, Rachel is sorting through the books and Violet, the surliest maid, arrives to work late and refuses a directive for Rachel to aid the task at hand. Violet's insolence reaches a breaking point and Rachel dismisses her. Rachel initially feels triumphant in her power, but Violet swears that Rachel will be sorry. When Sebastian returns, Rachel tells him about her ticket of leave and sacking of Violet. He's earnestly proud of her, and while they're sitting outside, he suggests they have sex in the open air. Though nervous because of the openness, this is the most enthusiastic Rachel has been towards the prospect. She still shirks away from his attempts to give her pleasure until he binds her wrist with easily breakable lily stalks. Though she's not literally bound, the symbol of giving up her power opens her up. Additionally, Sebastian begins to make Rachel ask for specific acts, rather than just taking the initiative of himself. She's able to orgasm for the first time with him, but Sebastian sees a sadness after that he can identify, but Rachel cannot articulate. 
He thinks of asking her to tell him that she loves him, but he balks the potential hollowness of the request. They take a short trip to the seaside town of Plymouth, an almost false honeymoon, under assumed names. Sebastian tells Rachel that the day before was his birthday, and she decides to buy him a present, a libretto of La Traviata, one of his favorite operas. Their mutual affection and trust is established, so that night, Rachel decides to tell Sebastian about her husband's abuse. The details are not related directly to the reader, but afterward, Rachel thinks the worst has happened. She's opened herself up completely, and Sebastian was going to hurt her. Back in Wickerly, when Rachel returns home after attending her duties, she sees Sebastian arguing with Luz, one of the administrators of her parole. Sebastian is insisting that there was some sort of mistake. Luz informs Rachel he has a warrant for her arrest because she violated the conditions of parole. None of the administrators received similar letters as Rachel. She attempts to show the, the letter of leave to Luz, but is missing from her room. Sebastian staves off immediate arrest and has a plan to figure out what is going on, but his father has died, so he must also go to his family seat. As Sebastian is preparing to leave, Christy Morell arrives. He has another suggestion to save Rachel from returning to prison. Sebastian could marry Rachel. Sebastian laughs, and Rachel blushes. Christy apologizes for suggesting it, but also tells Sebastian that Lydia Wade's aunt has died. When he returns to the house, Sebastian has to look for Rachel. She is furious with him for laughing at the suggestion that they married. He apologizes, but she insists that this is his true self. She knows that marriage between them is impossible, but she remembers him telling her that he was falling in love with her, and now he has made her feel cheap. Sebastian realizes that all his encouraging of her to be independent has now made her independent of him. Sebastian has to leave to go to his father's funeral. During that trip to see his family, Sebastian spends most of the time thinking about Rachel and then decides he will make his home in Linton, rather than the more austere seat of his family. When he returns, prepared to declare his love for Rachel and understanding that his saving of Rachel was a self-interested act, he finds a note stating that she has left. But Sebastian also receives the news that Rachel has been captured during her escape attempt through Plymouth and now has been arrested. He is worried that she will attempt suicide rather than return to prison. Rachel is brought before the magistrates again, only Sebastian is missing this time. During the proceeding, William Holyoke attempts to be a character witness, but his honesty about conversations with Rachel makes it clear that she was trying to escape punishment. Amorel also advocates for Rachel's character, but to no avail. The magistrates seem prepared to send Rachel back to prison for two years. Then Sebastian arrives. He is furious to see Rachel in chains and Sully and Violet in the proceedings audience. Sebastian seems to know that Sully and Violet are responsible for the false letter to Rachel, but Sully declares he has no proof. Sebastian then changes tactics and berates the magistrates for giving Rachel no chance of notice for her missing meetings or paying of her fine. Rachel owes a grand total of two pounds on her find, and Sebastian immediately pays it. The magistrates are satisfied with the administrative demands of Rachel's parole, but still take issue with her attempt at fleeing. Sebastian's explanation for this is that she was there on his instruction to buy her wedding trousseau. Rachel won't let this lie stand, and Sebastian is at a loss of how to help her any further. Then Christy arrives with evidence related to Rachel's original case. It seems as though they're going to accuse Sully of the murder, but then Lydia Wade attacks Rachel with a pair of scissors. Sebastian gets to her and asks, why the hell won't you marry me? The next chapter opens with a letter from Lydia's aunt to Christy, revealing that Mr. Wade was sexually abusive of Lydia, causing her instability and extreme jealousy of Rachel when she married Lydia's father. Lydia killed Mr. Wade. As Rachel is recuperating from the attack, Sebastian tries to wear her down to accept his proposal, but Rachel worries he's doing it out of a misplaced nobility or duty. She knows he did not love her when he invited her to be his housekeeper. He admits that that was driven by his desire to sleep with her, so he tells her when he did first fall in love with her. A meeting concerning household duties when one of the maids and Rachel shared courteous smiles, something she had not yet shared with Sebastian, which made him act out, trying to display cruelty, so he reports to her that he fired a stable boy. 
though Sebastian actually had a good reason for it, that the boy hit horses. But in the moment, in the meeting, Rachel responds by attempting to understand Sebastian, despite no evidence for his good reason or that he would have potentially had a good reason. Rachel's last resistance to the proposal is that she's a fallen woman because of her status as a convict, but Sebastian assures her that the title of Countess will wash away any past that she's anxious about. She agrees to marry him. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is the courtroom scene. There's a speech, it's not even, I keep calling it a speech because it feels like a speech, but it's actually an internal monologue that I think is the moment that I sort of fell in love with the book. And it's also, I know it's one of Chelsea's favorite moment, moments. So we're going to start with the inner monologue from Sebastian and then also talk about some of the things that he articulates out loud. So I'm going to have Chels read Sebastian's little inner monologue. He felt pity for her and curiosity and an undeniably lurid sense of anticipation. Against all reason, she interested him sexually. What was it about a woman, a certain kind of woman, standing at the mercy of men, righteous, civic-minded men, with the moral force of public outrage on their side, that could sometimes be so secretly, shamefacedly titillating? He thought of the hypocritical justices of England's less-than-glorious past, men who had taken a lewd pleasure in sending women to the stake for witchcraft. Watching the pale, silent, motionless figure behind the bar, Sebastian had to admit a reluctant but definite kinship. Not with their sentencing practices, but with their prurient fervor. So, Chels, why do you love this, like, paragraph so much? I, I think this is even the part, this is how you sold me on this book, was this paragraph. <laughs> I, it, it's it's so honest. Like, I, I think this is kind of the thing that we keep coming back to, and we'll kind of keep coming back to this, like, when we're comparing it to other books. But, like, the fact that Sebastian is so aware of where his interest in Rachel is coming from and is so honest with the reader where it's coming from to begin with. So it's not just like an abstract cruelty. It's a recognized titillation. It's like a watching a train wreck kind of thing, the excitement that he's getting from it. Like it, it, it just feels like you're listening to someone admit something that people don't admit and it, it was just felt so novel. I don't think I've ever read a romance novel that did that. And I've read ones that are very violent, but this one, it just like the way that we get into Sebastian's mind, the way that he is so explicit with how he sees Rachel, what his interest in Rachel is. And like, it's, he just wants to toy with her. It's crazy, his self-awareness, but like the lack of self-reflection, <laughs> it's just like such a crazy dynamic to have in a character. Yeah, I, I love this paragraph. So I one of my party tricks is that I can always tell when an author has like a legal background. Producer mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Gaffney, <laughs> but I don't think she has a JD, but she did work as a freelance court reporter, which I think is a very interesting career to be able to write these court scenes. And like obviously has some interest in like the legal field. I don't know like her legal history or like she did study like literature. And so I'm sure she has a ability to do scholarship. But I do think this this connection is so interesting. So many of the people who wrote British common law, especially about like like rape and viol- like violence against women, were also the ones who were writing the common law that allowed witchcraft to be prosecuted. Most famously, Sir Matthew Hale. I wrote about this in my newsletter, but he's the one who um, created the marital rape exemption in common law. He's he's also like notorious for sending people to the stake for witchcraft. Like he he has all of these like legal theories, but like what proves witchcraft? He argues that. Because we have laws against witchcraft, that's proof that witchcraft exists. It's like very circular logic. And what? So it's, it's like, <laughs> I don't Sorry. know if Gaffney has like Matthew Hale in mind, but there were very like specific people who obviously Matthew Hale, who has all this common law jurisprudence about like 
prurient, like, like sort of controlling women through sex acts in co- this connection to witchcraft. Like this connection is very historical and real. And so like when I read this paragraph, it just was like, oh, like, wow, that's like, that's so like plays out in history um, that these things connect. The other thing I connected to is like the interest in true crime. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we, t- we talk about true crime now as like this like new phenomenon, but I don't think like watching a woman's body be violated or in pain or like like subject to systematic violence is a new thing. And I love that Sebastian's indictment is really biting, but no one escapes it. So not him, but also not the reader who may be reading the scene and wondering like, what did this woman do? Like, what did her husband do to her? And so I love throughout the book, there are these moments where like, if you if you spend too much time wondering like the details of Rachel's abuse, you kind of get wrapped up. Like it aligns you with Sebastian over Rachel because you're watching her like, not reveal all this to you Mm -hmm. um and so that that interest is is both something that like you sympathize with you're like oh i i kind of have that interest like you want to know what's going on with rachel but you're also you're not you're not totally innocent from that like uh sort of prurient um interest in in following her for this like tintillating reason doesn't he compare her to hester prynne too yes i think in the paragraph right before this Mm -hmm. um i think when it comes that it's like that this is this is like tale as old as time for him that there are there women who um, are also because the other thing is that it's like she in, in the in the courtroom she's the one who's being accused of being violent but everyone knows that she's the victim of violence and so there's that like tension between like she she's getting the consequences of like of criminal consequences but every, everyone's interested in her because she was the victim of violence I think this is like your connection to true crime I think is an interesting way for Gaffney to have the reader connect with Sebastian in a way because he's definitely not like a sympathetic or empathetic character in the beginning so you have to like build up that connection in some way I just yeah I think it's I like what you said about the true crime. I think that's how the reader connects to Sebastian. Right. And it's like, even if we're not doing bad things, we are, we're interested in bad things being done to someone else. Like we just want to, just knowing the information is still kind of on the scale, sliding scale of bad acts. Yeah. And I think how we get that information changes like with Sebastian, like as his relationship changes to her and the framing of like when he's like actually interested in Rachel as a person, sees her as a person, wants to support her. Like I think our relationship kind of changes there too. And I think that's why Gaffney starts with Sebastian's point of view and keeps it going for so long because we are like mm-hmm. kind of like voyeurs of what's happening to Rachel for the longest time and then we finally get her point of view and it it's definitely kind of like a little bit of a shift there but I, I think there's an interview too where she said that she had to start with Sebastian because she had to put the reader aligned with Sebastian like there was no other way that you could do it like if you were going to start with right. Rachel's point of view it just wouldn't work. Or you would have like you'd be like who who is this guy I hate him um, oh I think that's so smart you think of all the shows like say Breaking Bad you're like rooting for like straight up villain but it's from his point of view so you're like he's just he just had like, cancer and then he just you know <laughs> things went awry <laughs> <laughs> and I love Sebastian it's like he will not let you, like every time he's about to, he's doing something nice they're like oh this is his moment of redemption he's like I'm not doing this for good reasons like yeah. he knows that like he can sell this to the magistrates because it's like oh like he's doing this like act of largesse but also i think everyone in the room knows too because it seems like everyone in wickerly knows they're sleeping together pretty quickly Mm -hmm. it's like Mm -hmm. it's this unspoken thing where it's like he gets to act as like this like patron of the lower classes and 
and it, it's like this open secret. Like nobody is ever surprised that Rachel and Sebastian are sleeping together. It's just like, can we talk about it or should we not talk about it? I think um, it's a, kind of a spoiler for the next book, but like Sophie, like when she sees Sebastian and Rachel together, she kind of relates their backstory of just like, yeah, they were definitely together, <laughs> even though she was like, you know, the housekeeper. Um <laughs> But yeah, being an aristocrat wipes away a lot of sins. And right. th- that's why she, like, they can be together. He's like an earl, too. Like, I know he has, like, yeah, the viscountancy, but, but he's also, like, even higher than yeah. that. Like, yeah. he's an earl. Yeah, when his dad dies, he becomes yes. earl of, like, a different area, uh, which is confusing because sometimes viscounts are, like, the sons of earls, but he's a viscount and an earl for two different reasons. Mm-hmm. The aristocracy is a mess. Yeah, it's, it's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's one other part in the courtroom scene I want to talk about because I think it shapes the whole book. So I wrote about this a lot in my newsletter of, that I wrote about this book because Sebastian brings up theories of punishment. He he questions whether the mode of punishment for Wickerly should be rehabilitative or retributive. He asks this of another magistrate and the magistrate says something like a little of both. And Sebastian then ro- walks through the theories of punishment and how they apply to Rachel. She's done a sentence for 10 years, as adjudicated earlier, so retribution has been met. She's finished her sentence as judged by her original court. And then her follow-up crime that has led to this new proceeding is not really a crime, but a condition, as Sebastian phrases it, her lack of permanent address. So what are we really aiming to rehabilitate her from? Putting her back in prison just continues to have her not have a job or a permanent address. The solution would be to give her a home. And so that's how Sebastian argues his scheme to the other magistrates. But this is one of the first books that I've ever read. I think one other book that I've read does this, that sort of pulls out these theories of punishment in such explicit forms. And like, this is a lot of what I write about is like, which theories of punishment are like being played out in romance novels. That's why the romance novel, the the newsletter is called Restorative Romance after Restorative Justice. But Sebastian is using the words rehabilitative justice and retributive justice. But I think the the arc of Sebastian with Rachel is much closer to restoration where he has to figure out how to fix things for her. And also with Rachel, the question is, because she didn't actually kill her husband, like what are we rehabilitating her from? What are we, what's the retribution for? But I think these, just calling these words out, seems to be a big arc of the book that Sebastian is aware that there has to be justification for actions, especially when it's from a system. That's why I feel like this book is so much more interesting because you have a lot of historical romances where someone is accused of a crime that they didn't commit. So they're actually innocent. And then so you're kind of on their side the whole time because you know they're actually innocent. And I think to have and to hold makes the case that like it really doesn't matter. Like it it matters in some way, I suppose. But like, I think honestly reading this whole book, I think if you, if Rachel had killed her husband, I think most readers would be like enough. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, um, (laughs) and so that's what I think one of the things that makes this book really special, particularly like displaying the ticket of leave, which I guess is kind of, it seems very similar to like how the parole system works here. Yeah. Parole comes from the penal colonies. So like, that's why they don't call it parole yet and so the ticket of leave but it's similar to parole like in the function of like administrative checking in afterwards but that's the word parole exists in the penal colony so that's the distinction but they're they functionally work the same Mm -hmm. and then there's like so uh so many things that happen to rachel that are just like kind of like seem to like prime her to put her back in the position where she starts like so she doesn't have she doesn't have a place to live, therefore you go back to prison. It's kind of like the same things that we see like in today where like, oh, you have to say that you 
were in prison, so therefore it's harder for you to find a job in certain states. Mm-hmm. And all these all these sort of things that you can kind of like tie back to to present day American uh, mm-hmm. judicial punishments. Yeah, I'm like, how little has changed actually? <laughs> like, it, it's just I like what you said though that it doesn't like almost matter if Rachel did kill her husband or not because I think Gaffney drives this home even further when we find out that it's Lydia and Lydia's also a victim it's not like this satisfactory moment like the way and you're like reading a mystery and you like finally find out who the murderer is like not it's not it's not like that feeling in a mystery book it's just like oh another victim yeah like would enacting any sort of like suffering on lydia like how would that make anyone better like how would that make anything oh yeah Yeah, it's just it's just a very clever very empathetic way to portray all these characters and lydia like when we see lydia throughout the book even though we're giving like these uh i I almost said clues they're not clues like people are straight up being like lydia's not okay um but yeah her cruelties her like single-minded obsession with rachel for like making rachel suffer after everything that rachel has further suffered like we're not really primed to be on lydia's side but like you a victim is a victim like it's uh, she doesn't have to be sympathetic like it's what what a situation like what a what a life Okay, so now I want to move to Rachel and sort of because it does take us a while to get to Rachel's POV. We are with Sebastian for a long time, and so the first thing that Rachel tells the reader about herself is that she cannot make decisions anymore, even simple ones with no real consequences. I didn't realize this until the this reading it this time, which is I think my third time reading it. That actually the first thing we see Rachel do is exactly that. She makes the decision presented to her by Sebastian to be her housekeeper. There's a discussion to be had about whether that's actually a decision. But even for Rachel, I think being able to say out loud, like, I will go with you, feels like a big leap, even if it's a coercive decision. Obviously, she does not want to go back to jail, and that idea is so awful that this makes the choice more straightforward. But I think something else is going on for Gaffney to have these be really the first two pieces of information that we have about Rachel's state of mind and her actions, like the level of distress that decisions... Um, cause for her and the level of distress that prison causes for her that that would like make this decision to go with Sebastian so much easier yeah I think when I was first like describing this book I called this a choice that is no choice at all uh so that's kind of how I reconcile the two so it's either prison which Rachel is desperately afraid of and has decided she would rather die than return to or allow Sebastian to violate her in an unspecified, though you can kind of tell, way. So in the early days when she's at Linton, Rachel is often thinking, like, what will he do to me? And then while it's a source of distress, she also thinks that she thought she was impervious to everything now, short of locking her up in the cell again. What could anyone do to hurt her in any deep or lasting way? Nothing. And yet she feared Sebastian Verlaine. So she has this sort of disassociation from her body, like the idea that there's nothing Sebastian could put her through that would hurt her is the starting point of like the book long journey where Rachel indulges in more tactile pleasures like physical touch, the sun on her face, petting a dog. Rachel's initial difficulty in making choices kind of stem from her traumatic experiences where they were stripped from her. But the early choice to go with Sebastian is because she kind of believes herself to be invulnerable uh, and that pleasure and pain are experiences that she's immune from and that she is kind of like a husk of a person. 
Yeah, I think the the like the watching Rachel make choices. I think that's something that Sebastian also has to figure out because again, he he's thinking like I'm gonna be the the worst thing for her, and it's kind of like Sebastian, you're not that important to Rachel at this <laughs> point. Like he's so convinced that like he's gonna be the the thing that she's worried about, and it's like it's much more like what's she gonna do with the curtains? Like how is she gonna give people directions? Like these are the things that cause her like paralyzing fear. So whatever Sebastian does is not going to be as bad as what her husband did. And even if he does what did what her husband did, she's not going back to prison. Like that that's the goal. It's like she will accept anything to avoid going back to prison. And Sebastian like watching Rachel like learn to make decisions and also he his goal is for her to be independent. He's like he's like wants to like teach her to to be a person again. He sort of takes on this like weird goal which he's doing for his own sexual pleasure, but also it becomes like this very like sweet arc where he's like trying to teach her how to make decisions. Of course, what ends up happening is that she ends up making the decision to try and leave him. What That's the part that's like, I guess I have like the most like sympathy for Sebastian in that moment where like someone else has a worldview that like just is so different than yours and like you cannot factor yourself into them. Um, and Sebastian keeps trying to, he's trying to figure out like, what is he doing? What is, what is he doing to Rachel? What is Rachel responding to him? And it's like, he's just kind of a non-factor for her until he starts being kinder to her or incredibly, incredibly cruel to the point where he becomes disgusted with himself. Like it has to be so extreme that Sebastian, he, he, he sort of gets untethered. Yeah, he eventually makes that discovery that like kindness is what really gets to her. Mm-hmm. And before there's this part in the book where Rachel's like relaying a time in prison where she like went to the infirmary because she had some sort of sickness and the nurse just like rubbed her back or something and she like sobbed. So yeah, that's just Gaffney casually breaking me <laughs> while reading this book. Yeah, when they first meet and they first have that relationship, he's just like another in the long line of men that have abused Rachel. But like, mm-hmm. I think that I that I have that quote, I think, from the moment that you were mentioning, Beth, it's like on the bottom. Here. Yeah, I took a picture of it on my phone because <laughs> so I have like the physical copy of the book. It's so good. Sorry, keep going. Um, it had taken him an unconscionably long time to figure out it was gentleness that devastated Rachel, not ruthlessness. Now he wondered if there was an ancillary lesson to be learned as well, that gentleness could disarm the seducer as well as the seduced. Gut punch me. <laughs> it, it, it's also, it's so hard. Gaffy is so smart at that where it's like, you're watching Sebastian be kind, but it's also he's being kind to control her. Yes. And it's like, like, as the reader, you're reading it and you're like, oh, like, you're waiting for the moment where you can start rooting for Sebastian. And it's like, he does not want to give it to you. He He's like, he will keep reminding you. It's like, he is doing this for prurient reasons. He's doing this because he wants to control her. He wants to hurt her. He's not even sure at certain points, like what he's, what his goals are. And he's like losing his mind a little bit of like, what he's like, I'm supposed to be this way, but I'm actually feeling this way. But it works so well because the I think that it's a very back and forth that like, it feels like real life in a way where you're like, this. there's the arc is so like natural in the back and forth um it doesn't feel like they're like beats to expect yeah it just seems like he just wants a reaction from her like no matter what mm-hmm. like it's something that he has to like work for like even in the beginning days like where he's being like so cruel to her in a lot of a lot of ways and it's not until that like turning point which we'll talk about this later but the turning point of the game night where he realizes that like oh i don't actually just want a reaction from rachel this sucked right. like i did not right. want this like he i made a huge mistake yeah like <laughs> that's i think kind of like the like come to jesus moment from him where he's like oh i care deeply about rachel like 
what have I done? Like, who am I? Like, it's just, it's so wild. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the rape scene. And I'm going to call this the sexual rape scene, which seems like it's like an overkill of a, a phrase. But I think you'll see in a minute why I'm calling the sexual rape scene something different than sort of the structural rape scene, which is the game night we referred to. So Sebastian's assault of Rachel is not a one-off, but the sexual rape scene comes first. So this was my first bodice ripper. I was really worried that I'd be reading the eroticized rape like I referenced earlier. But the gap in my expectations and the reality reminded me of two Alfred Hitchcock films. So the most famous sexualized violence in his filmography, and maybe in film history, is Marion Crane's Murder in Psycho from 1960. It's a 45-second scene that is famously complicated to shoot. It took dozens of camera setups to film and includes 52 edits. The formal result is really frenetic and violent, not even considering the violence that's actually being depicted. But Sebastian's first rape of Rachel is much closer to the experience of watching the more polarizing um, Hitchcock film Marnie from 1964. Tippi Hendren plays Marnie, a thief who has been employed by Mark Rutland, played by Sean Connery. Rutland blackmails Marnie into marriage, and on their honeymoon, she repeatedly denies his attempts at physical intimacy until he eventually rapes her. The actual rape is filmed the opposite of Psycho. It is so subdued that I have read the rape referenced as happening off screen, though I disagree. The camera focuses on Hedren's face and zooms in. She has a blank thousand yard stare and Connery's body is laying on top of her. Rutland just wants to know what drives Marnie to steal and he spends the rest of the film doing a pseudo Freudian interrogation of her. The experience of reading Sebastian's first sexual rape of Rachel, to me, is much closer to the experience of watching Marnie than Psycho. And I think this gets to the theory that academic uh, Angela Toscano writes about in a parody of love, the narrative uses of rape in popular romance. She classes Sebastian's rape of Rachel as a rape of coercion, as opposed to a rape of mistaken identity or a rape of possession, and argues that the rape of coercion has an element of inquisition, where narratively the hero probes the, the heroine's identity because she's a mystery to him, attempting to get a reaction out of her. Like Marnie, Rachel's reaction to the sexual rape is underwhelming to her assaulter. She comes across as cold and unbothered. I want to talk about our reaction to the scene for Rachel and what it means for Sebastian. And then we'll also talk about the more quote unquote successful act of violence against Rachel, which is closer to an actual inquisition. Yeah, I love uh, classifying this as a rape of coercion because that's absolutely how I see it too. Because Sebastian's early interest in Rachel where he identifies with the prurient fervor of religious zealots is kind of a titillation from her distress and her memories. And it's also like this morbid curiosity that dehumanizes her. So even when he's engaging in some semblance of seduction, his interest is not fully with Rachel, but with Rachel's experiences with her abusive husband. So during the scene, he's like continually asking her, what did he do to you? And did he hurt you always? Was there never any pleasure for you? So he's not really in that moment either. Like he's kind of like trying to figure her out and for his own salacious reasons. Right. Um, kind of like, Emma said, and uh, as Toscano mentions, the actual rape is this, like, cool, controlled act, and the brutality comes from Sebastian's questions, like Charles said. Um, Toscano says, the rape is inquisitional. In the latter narrative, Rachel does not respond either physically or verbally, leading Sebastian to realize that she will never answer him. It is the initial failure to garner a response from her through physical rape that leads to a verbal rape. So this is kind of what we've been hinting at. Sebastian wants to know Rachel's identity, and because he knows he won't get answers from her, he recognizes that his terrible friends will. So there are three friends, and Sully is the worst one. When they question Rachel, so there's like this scene 
where he invites his friends over. We talked about in the plot summary. All four of them are there. And the whole point is to just, well, I have a quote that I'll, I'll reference. Um, so they question Rachel about punishment in prison. She excuses herself and says she'll come back, but she didn't come back. He had to send for her after they had assembled in the drawing room. He didn't wait for Sully or one of the others to ask him to do it. He did it on his own, deliberately, cold-bloodedly, because baiting Rachel was to be the evening's entertainment. Everyone knew it. The fact he'd lost the stomach for it himself didn't signify. On the contrary, it pointed to a new and dangerous weakness in himself he didn't like and was determined to snuff out. Sully and the rest would be his proxies while he regrouped, reminded himself of who he was and of what his purpose in life had always been, the pursuit of selfish pleasure. So this, like we mentioned, is a pivotal moment in the book where Rachel finally talks about what happened and is like this verbal assault, essentially. And Sebastian gets a mirror up to himself is the best way to describe it. Yeah, and I think Chelsea has a quote about sort of what Sebastian's like preamble to Rachel is for the game night. And I think this also makes it clear like why the game night is like more structurally a rape, even though it's like not literally, he's not literally assaulting her. Yeah, I I just think about this quote all the time because it's just not only like it it makes it clear like kind of like that intentionality, but also just mm-hmm. like uh, I think kind of like talking about like Rachel's locked mind. Well, there's so much about her that Sebastian knows, but it. Uh, I'll just read it and then I guess we can talk about it after. Um, So this is before the game night. He had initially approached Rachel to uh, have a gathering for the people at Wickerly before he comes up with the much more cruel scenario of the game night where he invites his London friends. So he ends up inviting an even more hostile audience than he was initially intending. But when he asks her to hostess for this gathering of people at Wickerly, he notices that she's reticent and then he says... You spent the last 10 years in a small room by yourself. You've lost the ability to converse easily with others, and you're still nearly incapable of making choices, even simple ones. The good people of Wickerly believe you're a murderess, and you not unnaturally find dealing with them a trial and an embarrassment. You want to keep to yourself and attract the least amount of attention while you try to rebuild some semblance of a life. If it were up to you, You would rather not organize and play hostess at a party for a lot of hostile strangers. And so just when Rachel is starting to get relieved, he understands her. He understands where she's coming from and why she doesn't want to do this, where she thinks he's going to give her that relief. He then comes back and says, but of course, it's not up to you, is it? It's up to me. So that's what makes the whole scene and the game night so much more chilling. The fact that he's entirely aware of every single source of her discomfort. He's so in tune with her and how she interacts with the world at this point, her unique challenges. And he decides to put her through this extreme trial anyway. Yeah, so this is the one. So this is sort of why it functions more like a rape, because I think also the... The condition of her employment, she understands like she's going to have to sleep with him. And so when even when she makes like the the lack of consent choice at the at the court, she's like, okay, like I, I'm predicting I'm going to have to sleep with this guy. She's not predicting she's going to have to host a party for him, <laughs> which is so much worse um, in her mind. And it, like, this is the scene that when I read it, now that I've read other body shippers, this is the scene when I, I'm rereading the book. I'm like, this is the part that like makes me feel like I'm reading a rape scene, like compared to like when I'm reading Stormfire and I'm reading the really violent stuff. This is the one that feels like the closest to an unforgivable act on Sebastian's part. Like it's the when I'm the maddest at him. It's when it's like he's the cruelest to Rachel because it it he knows exactly how bad it is for her, and there's no there's no really excuse for it. 
Yeah. And just to give like some context, like if you haven't read the scene, if you haven't read the book, like this is, uh, he has been, Sebastian has been spending the entire time trying to get answers from Rachel and not really been able to, or at least not been willing to kind of go to the lengths that they end up going to at this party. So the game night, they have this game of called truth where like, uh, once you draw like somebody else will ask you a question, you have to tell the truth. And they like, they game it to where Rachel has to answer way more questions than everybody else at the party. And they ask her more and more salacious details. Like, what did you do in prison? How were you punished? What was that like? What did your husband do? Like all of these things that are just like huge cuts to her, like things that she hasn't really been able to speak about that she now has to as part of her employment do to these people who are way more malevolent than Sebastian. Like his friends are so much worse than her. They have no concept of a future with Rachel, so it doesn't matter to them at all what happens to her that night. Whereas Sebastian, while he likes to think of himself as someone who has no conscience, like he he envisions like something with Rachel. Like he does see her as a person by this point, whether he has fully realized it or not. Yeah, I think that's what is so hard to read about this scene, where it's like he could have just been like detached and unfeeling the whole time but it is because he's starting to feel and he's starting to feel guilty and be like oh wait this isn't actually how I wanted this to go or now that I'm seeing it it's actually terrible this is terrible yeah and notably this the question that Rachel won't answer is what her husband did to her like she will talk she's talking about prison in much more detail than she was talking to Sebastian about it initially it's like sort of her her life before entering the house she will talk about in the indignities of that and sebastian's sort of surprised at the level of detail she's sharing but the question that makes her run out of the room is the one about the week of her marriage about like a very specific act that was sort of reported um that sully brings up and so it's like this is like the last like frontier for like information about rachel and she it's like this is her this is her line that she will not share with just anyone even if she's just trying to like go through the motions of like getting through the party so before we move on to the parts where Sebastian is like trying to fix things for his initial bad behavior, I do think we should talk about the dynamic that Sebastian and Rachel have that's certainly not unique to this book, but so often goes unquestioned. The romantic relationship between a titled man and a woman in his employee, or really any woman living in his house at his behest. I've compared this book at length to Cold Hearted Rake by Lisa Kleypas because I feel like the sex scenes are structured very similarly, but that book is not remotely characterized like a bodice ripper. Um, but I was wondering if either of you had examples from your reading of this dynamic, particularly of books that skirt the categorization of bodice ripper, despite this pretty clear element of coercion with sleeping with someone who's dependent on you for their livelihood. Yeah, um, in our group chat, I was like, I want more aristocratic characters like Sebastian because they would be more like him. I feel like so often authors are having these characters be like the exception, like they're the exceptionally nice, rich, aristocratic guy, which I feel like it just like would not be the case. I just, um, I want authors to explore the ramifications of having someone in power. I think this is the trouble with romance sometimes where you have like your tropes and building blocks an author uses to build their book and then market it, then when they write the book, they don't interrogate like certain situations they set up beyond like what the tropes are supposed to like tell us about that situation. So I'm going to pick on the governess game by Tessa Dare to kind of like illustrate this point. So in the book, Alex is the governess to Chase's two wards. Um, he's a duke, right? Like he inherits the wards with the duke. He's a duke, yeah. He's, he's some level of aristocrat. He's a, he's a duke, but also like a crime fighter, right? 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the same. So, Batman. <laughs> yeah, of course. So Alex is approaching like spinsterhood. So she initiates a relationship with Chase because she kind of wants to see what sex is all about. So later on in the book, there's this scene where they're at like a ball, I think, and Alex recognizes her former employer, like a former employer, Sir Winston, who had tried to take, quote, liberties with her in the past. She tells Chase Winston won't recognize her. And when he talks to him, Winston asks who she is. And she replies, I'm just the governess. And then Chase then replies, you're not just the governess. You're not just anything. Then Winston understandably is like, well, of course she's not just the governess. They never are, are they? Then Chase punches him, making it into a spectacle, which Alex tells him that's what he did. And he makes Sir Winston apologize to Alex. So after this, there's this conversation where Alex rightly berates him and is like, everyone's going to know that I'm your mistress. Like, that's what I am. And Chase counters, she's not his mistress. And it's a point of the book where, like, the relationship is tipping into, is this something more? We can't share our feelings yet because, like, feelings are scary. So Alex does this, like, little speech to him, which, when I compare it to, like, a Gaffney speech, I feels, like, a little, little underwhelming. But Chase, so she says to him, Chase, you are a wealthy, well-placed man, the heir to a duke. Society will forgive you anything. Women in my position are not so fortunate. We work for our living at the pleasure of the upper classes. The tiniest hint of scandal and we are ruined, unemployable forever. That's the way English society works. Guess what Chase says to this? He says, then English society (laughs) needs to do better. (laughs) I'm like not sure how to feel. Like on one hand, I understand that Dare is like leaning into like a modern situation transplanted to the past. And she's using it to like further the emotional relationship between Alex and Chase to show readers how much Chase cares. But after this exchange, they have sex, and that's kind of, like, it. Like, this doesn't actually ruin her. Like, it's not... Like, to my recollection, I don't think she gets ruined. The rest of the page count kind of, I think, goes more to the relationship, and then they have to save the wards who've run away. So it's, like, this very surface-level examination of a power dynamic that could have been, like, the whole book. Like, this could have been, like, a whole book, and Dara just kind of, like, throws it in there for, like, one scene, where I'm, like... You could have just pulled this scene out, actually, so you didn't, like, skirt close to, like, addressing the power dynamic and just kept your book more, like, surface. I don't want to say it's, like, a surface level, but I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, because it's, like, this was the scenario, because I feel like this, like, Duke, or, like, titled man, woman in his employee relationship, there has to be, like, some, like, reckoning with it. And, like, the reckoning could be that, like, Alex wants to have sex. Like, that's that's a good enough reason to, like, explain away the the like power dynamic but it's like it doesn't doesn't mean that it doesn't exist or that it goes away it's just that like oh there's a there's a reason to overcome it that is like that makes it consensual or makes it and it's like with some but it it doesn't get if it doesn't get discussed it's sort of just like laying there and then there are other books where it's like the power dynamic the only thing that we know that like explains away the power dynamic is that when we're in the pov shots of the um the heroine it's like oh she's enthusiastic it's like, oh, we, we don't have to right. worry about the hero, like, taking advantage of her position because she's enthusiastically having sex with him every time that we have a sex scene. And we're like, great, cool. Don't have to worry about it. But that doesn't mean that he, if they, if she says no, that he won't kick her out of the house. Yeah, like, that's never, like, talked about. Or, like, even if we stick back with, like, with the governess game, like, you're, like, such a weird position as a governess. Like, you're not a servant, but you're not, like, in the house. Like, you're in this, like, weird 
halfway place. And I think that's like a really interesting thing to explore in a book. But very often it just is not even touched on. And like unemployable, it's like that implies that Alex is thinking about her next job. Like yes. presumably when Chase kicks her out of the house. Yes. Um, <laughs> It's like it's, she's she's thinking about it, but then it never it never goes anywhere. I just the fact that like the heir to a duke would need someone need someone to explain class to him is very funny to <laughs> I me. I know, I know. I was <laughs> like, I'm like, this is like for the benefit of the reader, for and also for her to have like the strong moment. Like you don't understand where we're coming from, and I'm like, he like, but he probably does. Like that's he the thing. Doesn't, doesn't she, care. Like yeah, yes, it's, yeah. It's not that he. Yeah, he. He understands very well, but it just doesn't really affect mm-hmm. him. Like, he doesn't have to think about it. I have, um, so I I guess first, before I move on to, like, one that I compare more to, to having to hold, um, I, because mm-hmm. we've all read, we've all read Offer from a Gentleman, right? The Julia Quinn. Julia Quinn, yes. Benedict's book. Benedict's yes. book, yeah. So it's kind of funny, like, you wouldn't think of, I, I, th- I kind of feel like Benedict's book is a bodice ripper, like, it's not explicitly a bodice ripper but that's something that I kind of like had talked about on TikTok before like uh, particularly when they were positioning Benedict to potentially be queer like kind of like the complications and like how you would really need to think about like how you write Benedict like if for if you were actually going to actually write this storyline that they do give him no idea what they're going to do with that I feel like they might just like throw it out the window entirely which is totally cool with me and I feel like would be fine with a lot of people because it's a weird one so an offer from a gentleman is a Cinderella retelling Sophie is an illegitimate daughter something something they meet up like Benedict's chip on his shoulder is absolutely second son syndrome like he acts like he's extremely oppressed because like people know that he's a Bridgerton but they don't know which Bridgerton so (laughs) (laughs) which fair (laughs) eight of them (laughs) yeah they're just like oh it's one of them and you can always develop a personality that's always an option Uh, yeah right like and the the show they make him an artist but like in the book like he's an artist but like it's in scare quotes like he doesn't like it's not right. like a thing that he's working towards. It's just like there's a profession. Yeah, right. it's just like at one point she Sophie sees his sketches and he's like ah, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's the whole, the thing that makes it a bodice ripper is that when he gets this sexual interest in Sophie, he like puts her in this position where he's like she had done something where he says okay, well you're gonna either be my mistress, go work for my mom. Or I'm going to get you in prison. (laughs) And so it's just like, Sophie's like, what kind of choices are these? Like, these are no, and and it's kind of similar to, a little bit similar to how, like, Sebastian deals with Rachel. Like, he's just like, look, you don't really have a choice. There is no choice here. Your life could be over as you know it. Or you could do this thing that, you know, is marginally better. Hopefully, you don't know. But because it's the Bridgertons and because there's kind of like this like glamour around the Bridgertons, like they're they're kind of presented as being a very moral and very wholesome family that Quinn doesn't really treat Benedict as being villainous in that way. So that's something that I kind of think about a lot, like when I'm when I'm like thinking about uh, how people are so intense about bodice rippers and i'm like y'all read bodice rippers all the time you just don't read ones Mm -hmm. that make it like explicit what's happening yeah i feel like the pushback only comes when like the author explicitly frames like hey here's some harm so we actually have to like work through the harm right it's like if it's not brought to the surface everyone's like what are you talking about (laughs) that's how i feel about cold-hearted rake where it's like like there were times when uh 
Devin and Kathleen hook up. I don't know if they have sex early. You said early she's enough. not the housekeeper. What yeah, is she, she? But she is. So she's the widow of the old Earl. Oh, she lives and, in the dower house. Yeah. Or she, she's going to. It's like she's in the oh, house. Okay. She's like raising the sisters. And it's like she she. So her issue, she has like three reasons that she could be kicked out because she did not consummate her marriage to the first Earl. So she's right. really afraid of like being kicked out for fraud. She's like, I wouldn't get a dowry or I wouldn't get a dower portion if they realized that my marriage wasn't consummated. So she's afraid of telling him about that. She's afraid of like him in general. He's kind of, he's a rake. And she's afraid because she, she argued with the Earl before he went horseback riding when he was drunk and dies. So she's also worried he's going to be, yeah, don't, don't go horseback riding if you're a bad person. <laughs> um, <laughs> so she's worried he's going to be, she's going to be blamed for the death of the first Earl. Right. And, so, and she also does, she, she would be sent back to Ireland where she, um, that's like her next closest like relations and she hasn't been in ireland for years so she really has nowhere to go if she can't stay at the house so she she's really interested in staying at the house and he's really interested in getting rid of the house like that's his whole plot it's like i want to sell this house their estate has too much debt and so he's seducing her while he's planning on selling her home and sending her back to ireland so it's it's very much like her where she's living is very dependent on him and it's never addressed as like part of a coercion or a power power thing between them. It I mean, he like looms over her like in a very masculine way, but it's like any sort of power dynamic is like masculine and feminine, not like owner of house and like guest in house. So yeah, she she's not a servant, but she is financially she's like dependent on him, very dependent on him. So why it's, am I not surprised Clapus frames it as like a masculine feminine? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's, this is why I feel like it's very – like, if you read older Clapus, it's, like, that are much closer – even her books that aren't quite bodice rippers, this one feels like a, a throwback in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it makes it more interesting. Like, it's I, – I like this book, and I think I once I started thinking about it in terms of a bodice ripper, I actually liked it more because, I mean, it, it, the couple is incredibly boring without that element, honestly. They're just – they're the book is kind of boring, but I, I like it as like a, this connection to Lisa Claypus's bodice ripper early days, but it's never announced. And that's the difference between this and to have it to hold where it's like things are called what they are and to have it to hold. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my, my Claypus take for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do Night in Eden, which is like much closer to, to have and to hold. Yeah. In scenario. Yeah, so um, there's this other book, Night in Eden, by Candace Proctor. It's not as good as To Heaven to Hold, and I think I had actually have real caveats for this one, but it's really interesting to think of them kind of like in comparison to each other because they're quite similar in a lot of ways. So in Night in Eden, Bryony is transported to a penal colony in New South Wales for murdering her husband. So... At the time she's transported, she's pregnant, but she loses her baby shortly after she arrives. So Hayden St. James, who's the hero of the book, like recently lost his wife. And he essentially purchases Briny from the penal colony to serve as a wet nurse for his son. Uh, apparently this was a thing that was very, very common for women prisoners. So Bryony's position is, of course, very precarious. She's much less than a servant in the scenario. She doesn't have the option to leave or to say no to St. James. So he initially distrusts and dislikes her also. He's worried that she will harm his baby, but he's also attracted to her at the same time. So there's actually that like real intense like bodice ripper hostility to this, even though I think you couldn't really call it one. So this is a source of heightened tension in the book as they're in this really, really remote location with mostly each other for company. While Bryony can say no in this book, and she does, 
she also can't really say no. It would be an untenable situation if it was sustained for like years and years to be indentured to someone who repeatedly remarks on your their physical attraction to you and who tries to accost you. So because we get Bryony's point of view, we see that she's also attracted to St. James. She sees that she's also like loving her life. She's She loves the baby. She's like coming into her, her own. It kind of stops it from being like this bodice ripper. But like Bryony's situation and Rachel's situation are not that different. They are both kind of like stripped of everything. They're stripped of their choices. They're stripped of their dignity. As women who have been arrested for the crime of murdering their husbands, they are kind of suspect, treated with hostility and like prurient interest. So there's kind of like a lot that are, are so similar in here. And But it's just, it's, it is handled very differently because Bryony in book like uh eventually consents but it's also kind of like if you're looking like how how forceful saint james was and trying to get to that place like how she's in this isolated remote location like if she wasn't interested what would have happened like all of those thoughts kind of come to me when i'm reading that book yeah so i guess like ending with like talking about like giving consent eventually i think we could talk about like what sebastian does to sort of earn rachel's consent and I think something that's interesting in this book is that the consent is not given, like, in one go. She sort of starts feeling more warmly towards Sebastian. But even she thinks, like, as he's sort of trying to attempt, like, seduction through kindness or, like, um, like warmness, she's like, well, I haven't really, like, given my consent to this either. But this is different. And if I have to make the choice between violence and this, I'd prefer this. There's a stage of that before she sort of enthusiastically consents. And so I guess like the arc of Sebastian earning Rachel's consent and sort of the actions that he takes and like whether it's successful, like because I, I feel very warmly towards Sebastian by the end of the book, but that every time I start the book over, I like hate him again. And so I wonder if I like have been duped or tricked by Sebastian because I, I, I guess this is the only bodice stripper that I've read that I like the hero by the end of the book, which is a unique experience where it's like I don't. In, in Stormfire, I don't like anyone, like, by the end of the book. Um, right. And in the widowest books I like, again, I sort of, like, don't like anyone. Like, I, I'm just exhausted and drained by them. This book feels, like, triumphant at the end. And I'm wondering, like, what – I'm trying to parse out, I guess, for myself, like, what makes that happen? And I think it must be something Sebastian does because my feelings about him change the most. Yeah, something that I think about a lot because like a lot of reader reactions to this book are this book is untenable because Sebastian is unforgivable. Like what he does is unforgivable. Like he's there. You can't redeem him. There's no. And something that I kind of started to think about with this book is it's not just looking at Rachel as like someone who's been uh, like harmed by like a carceral system, like someone who society is like talking about rehabilitating or whatnot but like how you look at Sebastian like does Sebastian deserve love does Sebastian deserve happiness does he deserve this happily ever after does he deserve to have Rachel feel about him this type of way and I think if we're gonna if we're going to look at Rachel with these eyes of like if you killed your husband it's okay I don't see why we can't similarly kind of come to that conclusion for Sebastian that that people aren't inherently awful like that you can you can get to a different place like you can kind of have these complicated feelings about people like people can do extremely bad things but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're worthless or that they they don't deserve to to change in your eyes that 
something that you do is going to haunt you for the rest of your life and that nobody should ever forget it ever, ever, ever. So it's kind of like, and that's kind of the more uncomfortable thing to acknowledge too, because, you know, even if Rachel did kill her husband, you, I think a lot of people would be like, well, he deserved it. Rachel absolutely did not deserve anything that Sebastian did to Rachel. But if we're kind of like getting into the space of just like rehabilitation, it's not just the rehabilitation of Rachel, it's the rehabilitation of Sebastian as well. I think what one of the turning points for me as like the reader when I'm like about Sebastian, how I feel about Sebastian is so after he's been stabbed and he's having like not just recovering, but like a long night of the soul for like several days. (laughs) (laughs) He's just like, what have I done? And there's this moment when he's like talking to Rachel and I think he's kind of explaining why he's changed like emotionally like when he's like talking about that night and like what happened and there's a point where he's like you know what I wasn't even gonna verbally apologize I was just kind of going to allude to it but actually no I apologize like I'm sorry that Mm -hmm. like that this happened to you and I was like honestly that's like the very first baby step and I'm like there for it and I think that's like right at the moment where it changes at least for me where I was like yes okay Sebastian (laughs) you got this baby steps I think something Chelsea said I think made me also think about like it's like Sebastian doesn't need to be forgiven for by everyone for everything he needs to be forgiven by Rachel for things he's done Mm -hmm. to Rachel I think Rachel's life up until this point, it makes sense that she would only trust someone with this information about her who is capable of great harm. Like that she she doesn't tell Anne, she doesn't tell Christy, she doesn't tell these two people in her life that are incredibly good to her about the the abuses of her husband. She tells someone who's going to feel bad about it. He like Sebastian feels bad as someone who has done bad things. And mm. that seems important to Rachel. It also seems important to Sebastian that he not protect himself from hearing that information where it's like Anne and Christy as friends to Rachel would not have to have I don't think it would be it would be hard for them as like empathetic people to hear from Rachel but it would not be hard for them to hear like because of things they've done and that I think that gives Rachel some control in their relationship that she wouldn't have in other relationships like if Anne because like you have such feelings for Anne and we talked in the last episode about how Christy Morell is like the greatest romance here he's so like the greatest in a way that's like boring right like he's he's like the perfect man like like, what's wrong with him (laughs) in some ways it's like i want rachel to be with that kind of guy where it's like someone who would never do anything to hurt her like and we just know that from the jump like i could set her up with that kind of guy but rachel seems to want someone who would never hurt her because he's capable of hurting her and chooses not to and that seems important for that that she's like she trusts that more than someone who just would never hurt anyone Oh, I love that. It's kind of on Rachel to decide. Like, I don't, I don't have to forgive Sebastian. She, she gets to. Rachel. <laughs> I, um. I do. I just, I, I do love her. She's so, she's, she's, we talked about, we call this a feminist romance novel. I think Rachel's steeliness and like the way that she talks about prison and like moving, just how scared she is of that system. I think confronting that system and her, her power in that is like what makes this feminist. And then too, like we haven't, um, we haven't like explicitly talked about kind of like after Sebastian kind of like sees himself for who he is, like kind of like how like part of his like about face, which is also kind of like part of why as a reader, it's a little bit easier to be like, they make sense together is kind of like he refocuses that energy into like, uh, he says he has two goals. He wants to make her smile and he wants to make her come. Or wait, he wants, he says he has <laughs> no, two goals. Right. He wants to make her laugh, makes her laugh. and he yeah, wants to yes. make her come. Um, and 
And so he, him putting all of that energy that he had before into like making her uncomfortable to make like to peeling her back like an onion, he puts into doing that. And like, it is just gesture after gesture after gesture after gesture. Like he's like buying her clothes. He's building her an orangery. He's getting her a dog because it was like one of the small comforts that she had had in prison is she once saw a dog briefly. And so he gets her a dog. Uh, but then after getting her a dog, he he takes it to the next level. He like logistically plans for the dog because he knows that would be something would be very hard for her if he just got her a dog and was like, here's a dog. She's like, I don't know what to do with the dog. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's just like all of these things added up together just kind of make it. And then also how he's not infallible after that. He's gotten to this point where he's thinking of her and he's doing all of these things, but he still makes that big, huge third act mistake where he laughs when Christy suggests that he marry, he marry Rachel. And it's not so much like Rachel, like she says, she's not, oh, I'm not, I, I know you can't marry me. Like, that's not why I'm upset, but you embarrassed me. Like you made me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You made me feel lesser than, and we're at this point now, everything that you have done, everything that you've showed me is where I don't, I don't need that. That's not something that I need to to deal with in my plot summary i noticed when i was writing it like how often i say and then rachel is embarrassed and then rachel is embarrassed like and then sebastian embarrasses rachel and then the last time he embarrasses her she's like i don't have to do this anymore you the, the, this is this is unacceptable and like now we are if you're gonna have a relationship with me you can't do this mm -hmm. and he has to move past that and i also like the part you brought up about like him devoting himself to her pleasure because i think that's maybe another part where i like come on i sort of turn on to his side because it's like her consent is still not totally formed there, but it's because she's so terrified of like having an intimate relationship. Her non-consent transforms from like being afraid of like violence in a relationship to like being afraid of the intimacy. And so like they both sort of like want to move past her non-consent. It's like she she wants to be able to have a relationship with him, but she's still saying stop, no. And he's like, okay, like we'll try something else or mm -hmm. like I, I won't seek your pleasure. I'll just take mine so we can still be intimate and like move past this together like i get it rachel it's like the harder you will fall the <laughs> farther up this kindness ladder you go and like i can't i think that's why that final embarrassment is what does it in. it's like because all that has happened and now you embarrass me like no thank you <laughs> right go be earl <laughs> <laughs> you go be an earl i'm, I'm leaving um, so i guess one last thing i want to talk about then before we move on to like looking forward is how much I love the scene that Gaffney writes where Rachel finally tells Sebastian about the abuse because the whole book we've been like wondering what the details of this are and it's sort of like one final blow to the reader for wanting that information I love that the reader never gets to know the details it's an intimacy between Rachel and Sebastian it sort of like codifies them together as a couple I don't know if anything else to say about this but it's what I, I Gafty does all these like fun structural things like the letters or the the diary in the first book. This feels like that sort of very thoughtful structure of information where it would be so easily it would be so easy for Gafty to have paragraphs of details about Rachel's abuse from her husband, but she just she tells Sebastian it but the reader never gets to know. I, I just love that. <laughs> yeah. I love that Sebastian at that point, he's like he wanted to know about the abuse so much, but then he gets to a point where he doesn't want to know anything about it because it would just be, like, too painful to hear. But obviously he hears it because it's, like, a big jump in their relationship. I think he uses the word atonement, too. He's like, part yeah. of my atonement is listening to Rachel, like, mm -hmm. give this, like, litany of abuse. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I love that too. I love that that was kind of like, you well, you got what you wanted. <laughs> right. And and, uh, and Gaffney's choice not to tell us what happened to Rachel, like I think kind of works in multiple ways. Like, first of all, like we already, what we're imagining is awful. Like it's so awful. Yeah. Um, and it's hinted at. It's not like we're completely in the dark. Yeah, but. yeah. We we kind of we have an idea of what happened, but like we're just not getting like the the details, which I don't think we should be privy to. But like, mm-hmm. kind of, uh, if you are like wanting to be privy to that, if you are just like, wait, what? What happened? What happened? What happened? Like that's kind of like putting you into the like prurient interest like that that same camp like we are also like the magistrates we are also the people who are kind of like looking down on rachel and judgment like wanting to hear her explain herself like why if you did a crime if you did something like explain exactly in grotesque detail why it was worth it like all of these like little cuts to the soul like so we're kind of like looking for that from her too and yeah, no, I just thought it was very clever. Um, and yeah, I was like, Sebastian, I don't want to hear. I don't want like, yeah, I think like at that point, like, I, I think even after just like a single point of view chapter from Rachel, I was just like, I cannot. <laughs> like, it's just like, it, yep. it's just like every, like every revelation. I'm not even sure if like her husband's, the revelation of what happened to her husband would have been more painful than like the things that she divulges that happened in prison. Like, I think that kind of like devastated me in a lot of ways, just like the, Mm -hmm. the casual cruelty that everybody Mm -hmm. kind of is just like, oh yeah, that's just what you deserve. Mm -hmm. It just, it was was hard. It was hard to listen to. I think one thing that I think Jordan Peele said this about the ending of Get Out, where he had a different ending, spoilers for Get Out, I guess, <laughs> where Chris, the main character, I think he's just killed Rose and the there's like flashing lights and you think it's a cop car because they're both like she's dead on the road. Or no, she's not dying. She's dying. And I think she calls out she's to the, that she's what like she thinks is the cops. Yeah. Yes. And as the watcher, you're just like, oh, no, like what? But then it turns out that it's his friend from the TSA agency <laughs> and, he, and he, he escapes. He lives another day. And Jordan Peele says the reason why he did that is because we do all the work of like what's going to happen in our imaginations. So he could give like like a happy ending to his character. But also we went through like that horrible scenario, like just in our imagination. So I kind of feel like that's like a little bit applicable to like what Gaffney is doing. Like we don't have to hear what's happening, but like I think we can imagine like some pretty terrible scenarios. We're horrified nonetheless. Yeah, (laughs) we're pretty horrified. So we love Rachel. But this is the book that is in the middle of the trilogy. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about sort of how this fits into Wickerly at large um, and then sort of and preview what, what book is coming. Because um, unlike the last recording, we've now all read the third book. <laughs> yes. So we're, we're, we're ready to talk about like what's the, what the hints to ver- forever and ever are. So Anne and Christy play a big role in Rachel's life and Sophie Dean appears. So how do you see this sort of fitting into the trilogy together? Like what? Do, how did you feel about Anne and Christy coming back? I didn't, I, I, I always appreciate seeing Anne and Christy because they're, they're cute together, but I feel like it makes sense for his, like, role as, like, the vicar. Like, he is going to be, like, supportive to uh, people, like, parishioners, especially ones that are, like, ostracized, like Rachel. Sophie appears, I think, just as, like, 
a little preview for next right. book. <laughs> but it still makes sense. And it does, like, narrative utility where she's jealous. I think jealousy can clarify your own feelings to yourself. And then, um, but she, but it turns out that she just has this mind he wants to invest in, so... Yeah. So uh, I guess first talking about Anne and Christy. So something that we talked about a lot in the last episode is kind of like how Anne sees herself. And so it was Mm -hmm. so interesting to see Anne through Rachel's eyes, like, because not that much time had passed. It's not like... Right. They've just come back from their honeymoon. Yeah. Like they're on their honeymoon at the end of this book. Mm -hmm. And or at the end of the first book they're on we see them on their honeymoon Mm -hmm. and they return from Italy in this book. So it really is like a week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that kind of oddness that Anne had been talking about with herself, like how she like didn't quite fit in. She was like a little bit weird. Like she knew that. Like that is something that Rachel also is kind of like, oh, she's wearing this dress, but she looks pretty and cool and like very, she's <laughs> yeah. very like it's just like the most pleasant version of that. And like Rachel is a kind, a very kind person, but I think that like her, her judgments aren't like false like they're not like her just being like oh yeah that was a cute like I don't I think she would probably remark on that if it wasn't like um right so I thought that was very interesting and then Anne reaching out to be friends to Rachel is huge for this book because like it can't just be like you you have no buy-in of Rachel's happiness if it's just with Sebastian it's like her getting a community something that had been like completely denied to her for her entire life so Anne like sticking her neck out for Rachel and 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 Christy also who encouraged the connection he was like I think you would really like Anne and and Rachel's like sure like she's not gonna (laughs) want anything to do with me but like no of course they're very extremely nice people so I think that that is a huge part in like Rachel's uh recovery is that like she can become a part of this community because she has that initial connection with Anne she finally has a friend like that's I think someone might have mentioned this earlier is that when she she finally um becomes Sebastian's mistress she's like the biggest thing that bothers me is that like now I can't be friends with Anne because Anne won't want to be friends which would also make me sad I want to be friends with Anne yeah like if I was, yeah. if I met her, I'd be like, man, that sucks that I can't be friends with her. It also works out perfectly that Anne is the vicar's wife because mm-hmm. it's like that's the one position that can be friends with both the housekeeper and a countess. Like, mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense that Anne is going to be like the bridge for Rachel to sort of like go between these these like class differences. Yeah, Anne's and it best. would be it would be devastating for Rachel to lose Anne. Like that part when they're like. Anne's like, you can call me by my first name. And, like, Rachel's, like, riding that high of, like, the next level in their friendship. And I was like, I just want a book of them being best friends together. And Anne's standing up for her. And the judges are like, this... This means nothing to us, but like you can talk if you want, and right. I will talk. I'll I'll say how great Rachel is. <laughs> um, um, and then I just wanted to say one thing about Sophie. So you'll probably notice some similarities between how Sophie appears. Uh, so Sophie's the heroine in the third book that we'll talk about next time. Uh, so in the first book, uh, Sophie's appearance is she's kind of on the fringes. There's this one point where Anne sees her and Anne is, I think, 24 at that time. And Sophie's like 20. And Anne is like married to Jeffrey. Anne has suffered greatly. And so that even though Anne maybe in some ways has lived like 
in some ways you could perceive it as being like a charmed wife. Like she's just like deeply depressed. She looks at Sophie and she's like, this is what I want to get back to. This is what I wish that I could be right now. I want to turn back time. I want to be happy, beautiful, carefree. So she has this kind of like envy for Sophie. And that's something that Rachel kind of happens has too. But although I guess you would call it more jealousy for Rachel where she, she sees Sebastian talking to Sophie and she's kind of like confused. She's like, what is this feeling like? Do I? <laughs> I'm feeling like what? What is this like, in my chest here? Just like, because like she, like, it, which is like a huge. It's like it's good like that she's like feeling this like she's she has like this uh proprietary emotion for sebastian like she likes him she's she's jealous of sophie because sophie is pretty and uh and is there and it's not necessarily anything to do with what's happening like what her relationship with sebastian is it's just like purely business purely brief but like it's mostly so uh rachel can kind of remark upon the change in her mind just being like oh wow that was weird i felt jealous that's weird i've never felt jealous <laughs> like that over like a relationship because she didn't want anything to do with sebastian for the longest so so that's kind of what gets us into the third book so now when the two times we've seen sophie she's kind of been this uh She's been adulated, she's adored, she's beautiful, she's on this pedestal. And so something that Gaffney has said is that she's like, oh, I want to I want to pull her down. So just to put you in the right mindset for book three, Sophie's going to have a really hard time. Oh, Poor yes. Sophie. I, I love, love to love and cherish. I love to have and to hold. I also love Forever and Ever. This is, it's a three for three series for me. So I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it forever and ever and also to read it again also did you i saw i saw this in the end of my to lo, uh, to my to have it to hold forever and ever initially had a different title it did i was uh, surprised yes. they advertise it yeah and i was like this blows my mind was it forever and ever is such a good title till death do us part it was from this day forward yeah so it's like to love and to cherish to have and to hold from this day forward and i was like why did they keep that it just, like, <laughs> i think it's the symmetry of the, the order the and symbol because they all have yeah. the the yeah. ampersand. Oh, okay. So I think that might be it. Because okay. even like, it's something that we talked about, or not talked, we didn't really talk about it in the episode, but we were kind of like, why is the first book To Love and to Cherish? Because in the, in the, in the vow, To Love and, and like to the, Cherish comes yeah. after To Have and to Hold. It's To mm-hmm. Have and to Hold, To Love and to Cherish. And in the vow that they quote in the books, uh, Forever and Ever doesn't appear. Like, I guess that's kind of like an optional, <laughs> like it doesn't have to be. So that's something that I noticed when I was reading it. I'm like, wait, that's weird that it's like this order is weird. And then also forever and ever isn't there. But it, I guess we've solved one mystery is that it was initially right. going to be from this day forward. But right. we'll still never know why the first one is to live and to cherish. I do love that. I do think the titles match up with the characters, even if yeah. the order should be in a different order. Where it's like, I do think those are the right verbs for the right couples for the first two. I was um, trying to think, like, I was trying so. to, I was trying to, like, do that. I was trying to be like, okay, do these match these care? And I think I was just kind of being like, to have and to hold and to love and to cherish felt very similar to me. So I'm, it's, yeah. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. glad that you, I'm, I'm glad that that makes sense though, because like, I'm like, maybe I'm just not, maybe I'm just not. I just think game. like the like theme of like like possession in this book like the mm. like possession I, I a lot of my favorite romance novels talk about like possessing mm-hmm. um like i was like again i'll talk about clapus one more time that's like <laughs> one of my favorite things in married by morning when leo says so leo the hero a very a very similar dynamic of employee like titled man employee um mm-hmm. woman he says like you don't like you don't have to be mine let me be yours and that's like it's sort of like the way that they 
problematize the power dynamic is like he's not going to possess her she's going to possess him and so i think that makes those verbs i think make sense for this sort of dynamic and i just think a lot about like how do we frame possession in a relationship and like consent and then i think love and cherish are so like lovey-dovey and i can associate those with like christy being sweetie pie (laughs) well also i feel like jeffrey did love Anne in his like own way but like christy like cherished her and loved her and wrote terrible <laughs> yeah. poetry for her <laughs> i don't give anything to see like all of this poetry <laughs> I know, right? right i just imagine Anne like explaining it away to like people in the village like christy is like performing something and she's like yeah he does this like <laughs> we love him yes So thank you so much for listening to Reformed Rakes. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find our bonus content on our Patreon at patreon.com slash reformedrakes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram for show updates. The username for both is at reformedrakes. Please rate and review. It helps a lot. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.